Well, good morning, church. My name is Andrew, one of the pastors here. If I haven't met you yet, I look forward to meeting you at some point in the near future here. Well, my brother will never let me live it down, nor should he. I was a 19-year-old who had just finished up my first year of studying to be an electrician at Ridgewater Community College out in Wilmer, Minnesota. My life plan was to become an electrician, and so I was apprenticing him for the summer, working as an electrician with him. And we were in this house doing some remodeling, and I was in a closet uh, doing some light fixtures and some, and some uh, switches and just installing different light fixtures and switches. And I couldn't get this one screw to grab. I had been trying for, for what seemed like an hour. It was a couple minutes, but I could not get the screw to grab. And so I humbled myself and called out to my brother. Now, my brother's older than me, and he's a bit sarcastic. And you know how an older brother likes to treat a younger brother. And so it took me a while to kind of muster up the courage to call out to my brother, humble myself, and ask him for help. And so I called out, hey, Jeff, I can't get this thing to work. Could you come over and help me? And so he left the job that he was doing, came over to the closet, and he said, lefty-loosey, righty-tighty, assuming I would know that, right? Like, who doesn't? I've already been to a year of school, and everybody knows to tighten a screw, you turn it right. To loosen a screw, you turn it left. Lefty-loosey, righty-tighty. And so he kind of said that sarcastically and walked off, and I'm like, well, of course I know that. And so I keep trying, keep trying. I can't get the thing to go. So I called out to him again, Jeff, I can't get it to go. This thing won't work. The screw is broken. He comes over and he says, watch. Let me watch you. You try it, I'm going to watch you. And so I start trying to turn the screw. And he says, lefty-loosey, righty-tighty. I'm like, come on, I'm doing it right. He's like, no, you're not. You're turning it left. You can't get the screw to grab because you're turning it the wrong way. Now, before you judge me, some of you know how hard this can be at certain angles, right? Like, sometimes it's just hard to remember which way is left and which way is right. Anyone else have that problem? Thank you. Thank you. I'm not the only one. But, but the reality is, I was doing the right thing. I had the right tool. I was making the right motion, but I was doing it the wrong way. I would never get that screw to go in if I kept turning the left way. I had to turn it right. Lefty-loosey, righty-tighty. I was doing the right thing, but the wrong way. And I think many of us approach faith this way. In our desire to honor God and, and to do right and to be good Christians and to apply the things that we've been taught, we go to church, we read the Bible, we pray, we give to the poor, we want to implement the Beatitudes, the things that we've been looking at over the last couple weeks, and we want to do the right thing, but we continue to go about it the wrong way. Our spiritual practice is often done in an attempt to fulfill God's law rather than out of being reminded and keeping in front of us that Jesus has fulfilled the law. We go about doing our religious activity, we go about doing the right thing in the wrong way, thinking that we are working for God's approval rather than working from God's approval. Theodore Beza, a French theologian who lived in the 16th century, said, ignorance of the distinction between the law and the gospel is one of the principal sources of all the abuses which corrupt Christianity. Ignorance of the distinction between the law and the gospel is one of the principal sources of all the abuses which corrupt Christianity. When we don't get this right, when we don't understand the law and the gospel and how those two relate and how they're different, we can continue to do life, do Christianity, doing the right things but in the wrong way and end up frustrated. Some of you have been hurt by abuses within religion. That's what Theodore Beza here is saying is that these abuses start like this is in the Reformation when this is uh, when John, uh, John Calvin and Martin Luther broke away from the Catholic Church and they saw abuses of the Christian religion. 
they saw law before gospel. They, they saw that the church was piling up all these rules, all these standards on people and saying, if you want to please God, if you want to honor God, here's all the things that you have to do. And so Martin Luther and John Calvin and Theo, Theodore Beza, one of their understudies, broke away and they said, no, no, there's something here that the Catholic Church has missed. It's the gospel. It's the good news of Jesus Christ. Many of us in this room have been hurt by well-meaning Christians or well-meaning churches maybe or well-meaning religious organizations, um, institutions, or churches who have gotten the distinction between the law and the gospel wrong or they have forgotten to make a distinction. Many of you have been hurt by this and some of you just continue to hurt yourself. You continue to do the right things but in the wrong way. You continue to practice religion, but, but it feels like burden and law is being, pi- being piled upon your shoulders. And, well, I'm supposed to read the Bible, so I'm going to read my Bible. I'm supposed to go to church, so I'm going to go to church. I'm supposed to tithe, so I'm going to tithe. I'm supposed to give to the poor, so I'm going to give to the poor. And you keep doing, 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 duty, duty, duty. And the good news that we're going to see here today in Matthew is that Jesus came to set us free of that duty-based religion. He, he came to show us the right thing and to teach us how to do it the right way. Lefty-loosey, righty-tighty, Jesus helps us to understand that. The big idea from this text here is that the law is the right thing, and the gospel is the right way. The law is the right thing, and the gospel is the right way. Jesus here, he's been in the book of Matthew. Remember, he introduced his ministry in Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, where he's saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus has now come. He's saying, repent, believe in Jesus, turn from your wrongdoing, turn from your wicked and evil ways, turn from, turn from a law-based religion and come and follow me for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I have something better for you. For you religious Jews who have been following me diligently and dutifully through the Old Testament. And for you Gentiles who have been excluded, I have something better for you. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. For for you in 2019 who are seeking soul-satisfying worship, I have something better for you than Old Testament religion and law and duty. I have something better for you, so come and follow me. And he goes into the Beatitudes and he says, blessed are these type of people. If you are to enter my kingdom, if you are to be a part of my family and to walk in my culture, here is what is expected. Here's what, here's what I'm pronouncing about my kingdom, that those who are on the outskirts of society, the outcasts are the blessed ones. Then last week, salt and light, we saw that Jesus said, I blessed you specifically. I've called you to myself specifically so that you would be scattered into the world as salt and light so that you, my followers, would take this upside down kingdom, this radically countercultural way of living out into the world that people could taste and see that the Lord is good, that, that the world, the world that is dying and suffering and in decay could taste and see that heaven is at hand. And so Jesus is beginning this teaching and and he knows that the religious leaders, the scribes, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees are going to start to question whether or not he he upholds the Old Testament. And that they're wondering, is, is this like a, is Jesus a guy who we need to silence and shut up because he's going against our religion? He's teaching new things. He's teaching different things. He's not upholding God's commandment and law from the Old Testament. And so Jesus here with his followers, he goes into this. He says, do not think, verse 17, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. So Jesus picks it up here. Let's talk about the distinction between the law 
and the prophets. The law is the right thing. It's God's requirement of perfect obedience, which Jesus reiterates and expands in Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20, what we're looking at today. And then, in fact, he continues to expand it in the Sermon on the Mount. That's what the Sermon on the Mount is. It's, it's Jesus actually taking the law deeper. It's moving it from external religion to internal transformation. We're going to see this over the coming weeks. Jesus pushes his followers to think deeper, to, to search their hearts. Like, as an example, and we'll look at this next week, he talks about anger in the, in the verses that come after what we're looking at today. And he says, you've heard it said in the Old Testament, don't murder. Well, that's a pretty easy law to fulfill for most of us, right? Most of us, when we get angry, we don't act on that anger in murder. And Jesus says, that's, a, that's the external extreme. So the Old Testament law tells you not to murder, but I'm pushing it deeper. I'm pushing it into your heart. I'm saying, don't even foster anger or bitterness in your heart towards somebody. So, so Jesus here, and before we get into that, we'll get into that next week, but today we're going to camp in 17 through 20 to understand kind of the foundation and the premise for the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is upholding God's Old Testament law. He, he upholds it. He, as God required perfect obedience in the Old Testament, God is perfection. God is holiness. And he can't exist in the presence of sin. And so God gave all of these laws, 613 laws in the Old Testament to help his people manage how to be in his presence. How he would come down in the Holy of Holies, in the Old Testament, in, in the temple, in the midst of their presence. After they fulfilled all of these laws, 613 commands. There was moral law. This is how you interact as the nation of Israel and how you interact with the other nations. There was civil law. This is how you are to organize. This is how you are to structure. This is how you are to govern yourself. So moral law, this is how you treat one another. This is how you treat other nations. Civil law, this is how you structure and organize yourself and how you set up your kingdom and how the nation of Israel is to interact with other nations when it comes to government. And then ceremonial law, this is, this is when the priests would go into the Holy of Holies one day a year and this is all of the dietary law and the things that, that they would do to set themselves apart and make them distinct from other nations. So Jesus knows that people are going to start to question whether or not he, as a new teacher of the law, is throwing the Old Testament 613 laws out the window or not. And so he's preparing his followers. He's saying, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. The law there, that word law in verse 17 is Torah. It's the first five books of the Old Testament. And then the prophets are the books that precede. It's, it's the prophetic books where God sent prophets to come and instruct his people, Israel. Jesus says, do not think that I have come to abolish them. I have not come to do away with them. What God required in the Old Testament, the obedience and the perfection that God required in the Old Testament, which you were incapable of living up to, I have come and I have not come to do away with that. I have not come to abolish the Old Testament system, but to fulfill it. We'll get into that, but it's important for us to know that Jesus doesn't come to just do away with it. He comes to, re he, he, what he does here is he actually reiterates it. He says this Old Testament law was showing you what God's character is like. The point of the Old Testament law was to show you that you are incapable of pulling yourselves up by your bootstraps and pleasing God and doing everything that he has asked and required of you. It's to show you God's holiness and his perfection and your inability. 
So Jesus reiterates this law and he expands it. He builds it out. He takes it deeper. He says in verse 18, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until it is all accomplished. Jesus is getting down here to the specifics. He's saying that in the Old Testament, there were certain categories of law. There were law that were more important and less important law, but it was all law. And he's saying even the least important, the not, not a dot or an iota, like the difference between an L and a T, right? Like a lowercase T and a lowercase L. How do you tell the difference? By, the, by crossing the T, right? You don't cross the T, you don't know if it's an L. It, you think it's an L. That can change everything in a word if you don't cross a T. Jesus is saying the very specifics of the law, the smallest minute detail of the Old Testament law is in effect. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law, from what God gave you in the Old Testament, until it is accomplished. He reiterates this law and he expands it. I mean, look at, jump down to verse 20. He says, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. He, he's saying this to a bunch of outcasts. Remember, the people who followed Jesus, they were fishermen. They weren't the elites of society. They weren't the Pharisees and the scribes. They were the outcasts. They were the fishermen, those who couldn't get a job as a scribe or a Pharisee, those who didn't have the right lineage or the right training or the right pedigree to be among the religious elite. And so he's telling these outcasts, these, these fishermen, and then if we look back in Matthew chapter 4, verse 23 and, 23 and 24, look there with me. It says, And he went throughout all of Galilee, all of Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all of Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, and those oppressed by demons, epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them. Those are the people that are following Jesus. Fishermen, blue-collar workers, kind of the middle-class to lower-class portion of society, and then the complete outcasts, the handicapped. And he says, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. Upon hearing this, they thought there's no hope for us. The scribes and the Pharisees, these, the, these guys are like strict law followers. They're like the religious people. You know this kind of people where it's like they never do anything wrong. At least it seems like they never do anything wrong. On the exterior, it seems like they're always doing the right thing and, and you, could, you just, they're unbreakable, right? That's how these people viewed the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees. We'll learn about them later in Matthew. And here Jesus is saying that your righteousness must exceed theirs. They're thinking our righteousness can't exceed theirs. They know the law. We don't even know the law. Half of them are illiterate, very likely, we can't even read the law. And these, these men have translated the, the law through different languages. They've studied the law. They've dedicated their life to the law. And yet Jesus tells these men and women following him, unless your righteousness exceeds theirs, you can't enter the kingdom of heaven. 
So how can we, church, do the right thing? The, the law is the right thing. How can we do the right thing? How could they do the right thing and obey Jesus' command to attain a righteousness greater than the scribes and the Pharisees? It, it seems impossible. And the more that we go through the Sermon on the Mount, the more impossible that it seems. You have heard it said, do not murder. Easy, we can check that law off. But I say, don't even be angry. You have heard it said, do not commit adultery. But I say, anyone who looks at another with lust in their eyes has broken that commandment. You have heard it said, do not get divorced. You have heard it said, do not make oaths. You have heard it said, do not retaliate. You have heard it said, to love your enemies. Jesus pushes this law even deeper and deeper and deeper. It has nothing to do with the external. It has to do with the internal. And so church, how can we do the right thing? I mean, Jesus is upholding this. He's reiterating it. And he's expanding it and he's saying the right thing for you to do is to obey the commands that God gave you and that I am now giving you. How can we do that? How do we attain a righteousness greater than that of the scribes and Pharisees? It's easy. It's a Sunday school answer. Jesus. By living the right way. By trusting Jesus' perfect righteousness and receiving his, his free gift. This is how we fulfill verse 20. By living the right way. By, by keeping in step with Jesus. By, by following him. By listening to his commands. He tells us that unless our righteousness exceeds that of the most religious elite and devout and, and disciplined, we have no shot. So how do we do this, church? By living the right way. Trusting Jesus' perfect righteousness and receiving his gift. This is where we begin to find the distinction between law and gospel. Now we're going to have to study some more scripture to get this because Jesus doesn't fully unpack that idea here and now. Right? He's, he's leading these people. These people follow him for three years and they watch him go to the cross. And so they're tracking with him. So we have the rest of the scriptures and we can put this together today. And we're going to do that. We need to find this distinction between law and gospel. What is the gospel then? It is the right way. If the law is the right thing, the gospel is the right way. The gospel is the good news that the law has been fulfilled by Jesus, the perfect man offering us the perfect gift. And Jesus, he, he, he touches on that here in this passage. He doesn't expand it. I mean, he, he expands the law in this passage. He doesn't expand the gospel. He briefly touches on it. Look at this. He says in verse 17, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them. Okay? They still remain, they exist, I'm reiterating them, I'm building upon them. Do not think that I have come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. There's a difference. I'm not doing away with them, I'm actually fulfilling them. It's just a small little thing that Jesus says that he doesn't expand here and now, but this is the key to Jesus' life and ministry. We'll continue on in verse 18, for Truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law. Until when? Not a iota, not a dot will pass from the law. Until when? Until when? Until it's accomplished. Thank you for the feedback. It says it right there. I just had to make sure you're looking at your Bible. Until the law is accomplished. Jesus fulfills and accomplishes the law. Jesus 
fulfills and accomplishes the law. He does everything for us. He lives the life that we can't. He dies the death that we should. He overcomes sin and death and the grave. He's inviting these people to follow him and to come and experience this. And, he, and he's, he's working differently with them, right? Like they're following him. They have his, his voice to hear. They're, they're tracking along, learning his ministry. He's teaching them continually along the way. And right here, he kind of gives them a little sneak peek into the gospel, into Easter and into the resurrection, right? Good Friday and the resurrection. We're heading there in our calendar. Here he gives them a sneak peek into that. I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill the law. All of this remains until it's accomplished. Now, a a good listener would have been thinking, what does he mean by that? But then Jesus moves on to push the law deeper, to, 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 to show us our inability to attain righteousness. And he piles it on, verse 20, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Why is Jesus doing this? Why doesn't he just tell them here that, that you are incapable, therefore I am going to die in your place? Well, he's leading his followers into this kingdom ethic. He's, he's showing them what redemption is supposed to, what transformation is supposed to produce in them so that they could be good news, so that they could be salt and light spread out into the world. So he's living his life among them, giving them an example to follow And he's teaching them along the way, and they will get this upon Good Friday and Easter. When when they see that his body is no longer in the tomb, this will click. Oh, the Old Testament law wasn't abolished. All of that sacrifice that we used to do, the sacrificial lamb, Jesus is the lamb, the sacrificial lamb. All of that stuff in the Old Testament that was required of us. Jesus fulfilled all of that. Why did Jesus keep insisting that, that, that we do all these different traditions and Passover celebrations and, and law festivals? Because he was fulfilling it in our place, on our behalf. The perfect man with the perfect gift. I want to take just a moment and look at Jesus as the perfect man because this is incredible. Jesus, the perfect man. He lived the life that you can't. Okay, and a couple, couple weeks ago, Mark preached through the first part of Matthew chapter 4, Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. Here's one of the first examples that we see of Jesus being the perfect man, stepping into your place, doing what you, church, are incapable of doing. You cannot perfectly defeat temptation. I mean, God is in you and he's empowering you to more and more by his grace, but all of you know that temptation is impossible to defeat on your own. Am I right? You've experienced that before? Try as you might, that sin continues to seem enticing and you continue to give in to that enticing sin. Or maybe it's a sin that you aren't even aware of. It's a sin that, it's, a, it's this characteristic or habit or personality trait that's not in line with God's character and you can't even identify it, yet you continue in it. We cannot kick temptation, but here in Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11, we're not going to walk through it. Mark walked through it a few weeks ago, but it's a reminder to us that Jesus is the perfect man. That that when the serpent came into the garden and tempted Adam and Eve, they gave in to that temptation. When you and I are exposed to temptation, 
often we give in to it. Praise the Lord, by his grace, through the power of his spirit, he's empowering us more and more to say no to temptation, to say no to what's wrong, say yes to what's right. But we all know that we, that we continue to give in. Well, Jesus doesn't. He's in the wilderness for 40 days. He's tempted. He uses God's word. He overcomes temptation. He's the perfect man. Another example in John chapter 8, verses, verse 29. Jesus says to his followers, and you can just write these down and look at them later. He says, I always do the things that are pleasing to my father. Jesus is the perfect man. Do you always do the things that are pleasing to God? No. There's hope for you, church. Jesus does. He's the perfect man. Or what about John 19.4? This is Jesus on trial before Pontius Pilate. And Pontius Pilate says, I find no guilt in him. He washed his hands free of it because he found no guilt in Jesus, yet the crowds, the Jews, wanted to crucify Jesus because they were angry about him claiming to be the Messiah, about the one claiming to fulfill the law. And Pilate says, I find no guilt in this man. Proof that he was perfect. External proof, like from society, from Roman rule and law, Pilate saying, I find no guilt in him. On what charges do you want to crucify him? Well, he, he committed blasphemy. He claimed to be God. It, maybe he is. He's done nothing else wrong. Or what about Judas? I love this one. Matthew 27, verse 4. Judas, who betrayed Jesus, who, who, who turned him in for 30 pieces of silver. Judas, after doing that, he comes back to the leaders and he says, he, he asks for them to undo we often gloss over this. I think most of us miss this, but Judas has this like guilty conscience and he goes back to the leaders and he says, I have betrayed innocent. He, he gives the 30 pieces of silver back. Remember Judas, one of the disciples who betrayed Jesus? He, he, he traded Jesus in for money for 30 pieces of silver. Judas runs back to the people who gave them, him the silver and he throws the silver at their feet and says, Jesus is innocent. He's done no wrong. He's the perfect man. Would you take the money back and set him free? They don't do it. Again, proof. Jesus is the perfect man. Living the life that we can't. What about Peter? 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 22 says, He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. 1 Peter, I think it's chapter 2. It might be chapter 1. It's verse 22. Peter, he's one of the ones who is called here in Matthew. Matthew chapter 4, verses 18 through 22, the fishermen. The, the core four, the first four that Jesus calls, Peter, James, John, and Andrew. Peter's been walking with Jesus, observing his life up close and personal. I mean, this is an eyewitness to the life and testimony of Jesus. This isn't just myth that Jesus was a perfect man who never sinned. This is from his closest inner circle. You ask my closest inner circle if I've ever sinned and you'll get a much different answer than Peter's answer of Jesus. You ask any of your friends in your closest circles if you've ever sinned or if there was any deceit found in you, you will get a different answer. But Jesus' closest circle, his inner ring, Peter says, Jesus committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. He is the perfect man. 
one more, Hebrews chapter five, chapter four, verse 15. The author of Hebrews says, in every respect he was tempted, yet without sin. That's what we saw in Matthew chapter four. And, and these men and women who followed Jesus saw it day in and day out. This guy is perfect. He never holds a grudge. He never grumbles and complains. He never casts judgment on those who who annoy him. He never thinks of himself first. He always puts others before himself. This is the perfect man. The man who lives the life that we can't. The man who dies the death that we should. The perfect man who gives us the perfect gift. Let's look at how he is the perfect gift. We're going to do some more scripture study here. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 21, Paul says, For our sake he, God, made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, the perfect man. He knew no sin, became sin on our behalf, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Remember Jesus' teaching? Unless your righteousness exceeds that, unless you have an exceeding righteousness, a righteousness better than the scribes and the Pharisees, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. Do you see how Jesus, the perfect man, is giving us the perfect gift? He's answering that. He's saying the law is the right thing, but Jesus is the right way. You can only fulfill the law by following Jesus. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God, the perfect gift. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, Paul again writes, For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Jesus commands us to have an exceeding righteousness. And he shows us that we're incapable of having that type of righteousness. And here, we are reminded you are saved by grace through faith, not of your own doing. Church, don't beat yourself up. Don't abuse others for being incapable of what they aren't able to do. Cling to Jesus. Receive his gift. It's not a result of our works that we get the kingdom of heaven. It's through Jesus' sacrifice. Look at Romans chapter 10, verses 2 and 4. Paul again says, he's speaking of the Jews, those who perfectly, and well, they don't perfectly fulfill the law, but they strive to fulfill the law. They have zeal for God. See, they have, they have zeal for God. They want to do what's right. They want to honor him. They want to fulfill his Old Testament law. Paul writes, they have zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness that comes from God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Here's this external law. I'm I'm going to apply this. I'm going to do that. And then I will be a better human being. I will be a better religious follower. God will be more pleased with me. God will give me more approval. Paul says it's ignorance. Like Theodore Beza said, ignorance of the distinction between law and gospel wreaks havoc on Christianity. They did not submit to God's righteousness for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Righteousness doesn't come through the law. It comes through Jesus to those who believe. 
the perfect man who fulfilled the law. He didn't abolish it. He fulfilled it. He didn't erase it. He did it to a T. He crossed the T. He dotted the I. He put a period on. He said, finished. It is finished. Remember his words from the cross? It is finished to telestai. It is finished. For Christ is the end of the law. For righteousness to everyone who believes. And lastly, let's close out by looking at Philippians chapter 3, verses 4 through 9. You can flip there. It's on page 981 in the Pew Bible. Again, this is the Apostle Paul, who was a Pharisee. Okay, so, and he gives his own record here, his own track record of his awesomeness. Philippians chapter 3, I'm going to pick it up in verse 4. He says, though I, have re- though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh. He's saying, we'll let him say what he says. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh. If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, and this is all in the context of being a good, religious, moral, bound, duty-filling person. He says, I have more. Verse 5, circumcised on the eighth day. Check. I fulfilled that Old Testament law of the people of Israel. I'm one of God's chosen. Check. The tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. It means I know the law. I do the law. I practice the law. I'm among the elite law followers. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. The church was seen as an enemy of the Old Testament Jewish faith in its early beginnings. So Paul, as a zealous law follower, persecuted the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. Look at that, verse 6. Saying this this external, the, the right thing, the law, I was blameless in that. I got as close to fulfilling that Old Testament law as anyone possibly could. I did all the good things. I did all the right things. Blameless. Verse 7. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Whatever the Old Testament law gave me, whatever gain I had there, I count it loss as a sake for knowing Christ. Indeed, I count everything a loss because of the surpassing, surpassing worth of knowing Christ my Lord, for his sake I have suffered the loss of all things that I make all things and count them as rubbish. That word rubbish there is a is a harsh word that Paul uses. It's dung, it's excrement, it's garbage. I, I count it as human waste. In their culture, in their society, often there would be there would be dung and excrement on the streets from different animals, and they would walk around in sandals. And some of you have gotten dog poop on your shoe, right? You ever excited about that? No, you hate that. Like, Doug, Paul is saying, I count all of the goodness of the Old Testament that I did, that I attained, all of my status, all of my prestige, as though it's dog poop on my shoe. My ability to do the right thing in my own power is like dog poop on my shoe. It's rubbish. In order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. You see what the scriptures are doing here, church? You see what Jesus is doing? He's, he's setting us up. He's saying, 
I demand something of you. Back in Matthew chapter 5, verse 20. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And so Jesus comes, the perfect man, fulfilling all righteousness, having a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees. Perfect man without sin, giving us the perfect gift, the free gift of salvation. This is why we gather. This is who we worship. This is why we dig through the scriptures and why you hear the same thing week in and week out at Park Community Church. Because Jesus truly is worthy of our worship and praise, church. He truly is the perfect man who gives us the perfect gift. We're never going to stop saying it. We're never going to stop preaching it. We're never going to stop singing it. Jesus is all in all. So as we gather, sometimes you'll, you'll, you'll have good like principles and application questions and thing to, things to go and try. But mostly what I want for you, church, when we gather is for you to be awestruck with Jesus, the perfect man who gives you the perfect gift. We want to gather to worship this man. We want to gather to exalt this man. We want to gather to remind one another that in spite of our failures and in spite of our successes, Jesus truly is who he said he was and he truly did what we worship him for doing. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for living the life that we're incapable of. The perfect life with a righteousness that exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees. And for dying a sacrificial death in our place on our behalf. For overcoming sin and death in the grave that we could have new life, that we could actually begin to walk in this truth and experience it. So Lord, I pray that you would stir in our heart now Remind us of the gospel. Remind us that we live for your glory, for the good of others and the advancement of your kingdom. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.